When I was like nine or ten, The Matrix came out. It was immediately a cultural phenomenon. It was endlessly parodied, referenced, and homaged in popular culture. The wardrobes, the setting, the bullet-time bullshit all became so ingrained in the zeitgeist that it was easy, without ever seeing it, for someone to simply know The Matrix. Or at least to think they knew it. It was through that sort of hyper-focused lens that I thought I understood Gundam. Now, recently I've become obsessed with giant fighting space robots. And in my opinion, nobody quite does that like Gundam does. Which is funny, because until recently, I only knew Gundam through some snippets that I watched on Toonami as a teenager, and because of the fact that it had simply become synonymous with anything featuring giant robots. Until recently, I thought it was just a dumb show full of meathead action and screaming twinks smashing big fucking machines together because the cultural lens through which I'd viewed Gundam had been skewed by pale imitation, parody, and the endless ever-flowing march of merchandising, modeling, and toys. I mean, sure, there is a lot of action, and occasionally there are some screaming twinks, but one of the big things I love about this franchise is how realistic and in-depth its treatment of trauma is. I've watched Gundam Wing, Iron-Blooded Orphans, Witch from Mercury, 08th MS Team, the original Mobile Suit Gundam, and about seven different Gundam movies, and every single one of these stories is about a war. The people who get caught up in it, and the worry that not all of them are going to come home when the war is over. My obsession has led me down a rabbit hole, to the point that I spent my entire weekend at an anime convention in DC combing through booth after booth in search of one single thing. On the last day, while digging through literally hundreds of DVD cases, I found it, And folks, I am so fucking stoked to talk about it. So strap yourselves into the SRS Morrison, because we've got giant robots, we've got homosexuals, and we've got child soldiers whose capacity for traumatic experience is only eclipsed by the staggering amount of gender they've got going on. That's right, folks. We're taking a quick jump over to the correct century to visit the version of Earth from Turn A Gundam. Let's start this party with a bang! I am Diana of Themyscira. This looks like a job for Superman. Now we face doom. Lightning attack! I ain't popped no one's head off since Lobo! You are helpless against my power, X-Men! Let's go, bub. Turn A Gundam first aired in 1999. And though it had a fairly extensive cast and crew, there are three people in particular that I'd like to highlight. First up is director, series creator, and principal writer, Yoshiyuki Tomino, mecha concept designer and all-around legend, Sid Mead, and finally, the absolutely wonderful character designer, Akira Yasuda. We'll talk more about Tomino later, but if you don't recognize who the other two are by their names alone, let me tell you about some of their other work that you almost certainly are familiar with. Sid Mead worked on Blade Runner, Alien, and Star Trek the Movie, just to name a few. And Akira Yasuda designed a huge number of characters for Capcom in the 90s, including, interestingly enough, transgender icon Poison, who we discussed extensively in our first minisode of the season. Turn A is a fascinating show, even for Gundam, 
And while it's 50 episodes long, it aired in one shot over the course of a year. Like most Gundam series, and quite frankly, most stories period, if I'm being honest, it's a tale of two warring factions. The Earth, which by and large appears to maintain the cultural and technological trappings of the early 1900s, and the Moon, who are the last vestiges of a spacefaring humanity forced to leave Earth in a conflict that took place many years before the series begins. Our protagonist, Lauren Sehak, is an infiltrator sent to Earth to investigate its habitability for recolonization. During his first days on Earth, Lauren is attacked by wild dogs, and then he nearly drowns. Fortunately, he's saved both times by two very important people, Gwen Reinford and Sochi Heim, respectively, both of which will become incredibly important to his life and to his falling in love with the Earth and its people. But as you might have already imagined, the Earth is habitable because there are people there. And unfortunately, its current occupants would rather keep it than cede any ground to the incoming Moonrace invaders. But before I get too much further into that synopsis, let me talk about something different. You guys like theater, right? There is an ancient story from the Heian period called Torika Ebaya Monogatari, which very literally translates to the phrase, if only I could exchange them. This one's a story about a pair of siblings and their lives within the imperial court. Neither of them really matches the characteristics of their birth sex, so they decide to swap lives. The man disguises himself as a woman, and the woman disguises herself as a man. Each finds themselves in some pretty homoerotic courtship shenanigans before returning to their assigned sexes, escaping trouble, and living happily ever after. While there are several renditions of this play and a great number of adaptations, its reception throughout the years has largely depended on society's attitudes towards sexuality and gender. Which is to say that sometimes it's seen as a body and entertaining tale, or other times, like in Meiji-era Japan, as something repulsive, or even compared to the decline of the aristocracy. Where have we heard that before? In more recent times, though, it's been praised for its portrayal of lesbian romance many years before such a thing would be commonly portrayed. And it's even been viewed as a serious discussion of gender and sexuality through the lens of the era. In the 1980s, this famous story was adapted into a play by the Takarazuka Review, which Tomino cited as a huge influence on the creation of Turn A Gundam. The Review is notably an all-female theater troupe, which means that every male role ends up being played by women. It's existed for nearly 100 years at this point, and contracts for performers are incredibly competitive. Each actress trains for a period of two years, the first of which involves general training, but the second of which sees performers divided into two groups, male and female. Those who fill the male role, or otokoyaku, end up cutting their hair, speaking in masculine form, and adopting more masculine mannerisms and roles inside the classroom. Oftentimes, they end up being some of the most celebrated performers due to their androgynous appearance and handsome masculine charm. God, I can't imagine why. And it certainly helps that the inherent homoeroticism of two women playing out traditionally straight romance and drag draws in an audience exactly like me. You know, les... I mean, butch enthusiasts. Now, I know you're here to listen to me talk, but I bet you're wondering where the giant robots are supposed to come into all this. Don't worry. I wasn't just bringing up the homoerotic theater troupe or the hot butch actresses just so I could imagine myself being whisked away by a princely young woman with a square jaw and clear regal eyes. Well, I mean, I I can do a thing for two reasons. 
In his book, Tomino cites ancient literature and myths like Torika Ebaya Monogatari as direct influences on the plot of Turn A. But it isn't really hard to read the gender-bending nature of the story, or the feminine, homoerotic pomp and pageantry of the Takarazuka Review on this particular work. The entire thing is so inspired by them, it's practically dripping with it. Case in point, Lauren Sehag. If you've never watched any Gundam before, I'll go ahead and describe the classic Gundam protagonist for you. He is a young, brash, and boyish kid of maybe 14 or 15 that has somehow lucked his way into piloting a technologically advanced war machine. He's reluctant to be the hero, and also to fight, but in the end, he is a man of action. He's capable of both doing what needs to be done and dealing with the consequences of those actions. You know, stop me if you've heard this one before. In Yasuda's original designs for Lauren, you can see a number of attempts to nail down the final character that ranged from boyish to butch dyke. While some of those do look more like the classic protagonist, the Lauren we end up with is older, and he's much more on the feminine spectrum despite that fact. Lauren Sehak is... Well, there's no other way to describe him that gets my point across so viscerally, but he's he's a fucking femboy, with beautiful shoulder-length silver hair, which he often wears with a headband to hold it in place. He's also voiced by a woman, and while that's not terribly uncommon for young protagonists in shonen anime, Lauren isn't the typical age of a shonen protagonist. He's 17 or 18 for the bulk of the series, and his male peers are all voiced by men. Admittedly, they are young men, but they are still doing very masculine voices. While there are some ways that Lauren is similar to the classic Gundam protagonist, there are also many ways that he's uncommon. He's in love with the Earth, and he's fiercely protective of his new home, but he also wants to find a world where the moon race can peacefully settle and coexist on Earth. To this end, he often places himself directly in harm's way to deter violence and seek a peaceful resolution to conflict, which is a role that's often filled by the female characters in Gundam. Funnily enough, his mobile suit, the White Doll, doesn't even have weapons for the first ten or so episodes, and most of the early fighting is resolved via grappling, disabling, and running away. This is super unusual, because in every Gundam I watched before this one, the main character tends to be, or at the very least become, that guy I described earlier. They're often characterized by the loss of someone or something very important to them, and exposed to the violence and horrors of war until they ultimately become desensitized to it all. This is an incredibly masculine character trope, but in Turn A Gundam, the role of that guy is actually filled by a woman named Sochi Haim, who saved Lauren from drowning, as mentioned earlier in the synopsis. Lauren's feminine appearance, role, and mannerisms aren't just subtext, though. They're supertext. During his coming-of-age ceremony, he fails to lead the masculine half of the ritual, and Sochi actually has to coach him on how to perform masculinity. Additionally, Gwen Reinford, who saved Lauren from the wild dogs, often outright just refers to him as Laura instead because it fits better, much to the confusion of literally everyone involved. This miscommunication ultimately leads to an advantage, though, as Gwyn's insistence on using the name Laura obfuscates his identity to the moon race. Laura eventually becomes a disguise, a term that I use in heavy quotes, that Lauren often dons whenever he must present as the pilot of the White Doll. In order to solidify his disguise, Lauren is taught to dress, speak, and behave like a woman, almost as if he's preparing for a role in the tradition of the otokoyaku, but reversed. 
What this show does uniquely compared to similar episodes of countless others is, rather than being a one-off gag protested by the protagonist and abandoned at the earliest convenience, the persona of Laura persists for quite some time, and Lauren seems, after some initial trepidation, just as comfortable presenting as a man or a woman. Much like the Takarazuka Review, Gundam has a pretty enormous following among women and queer folks, and after watching Turn A, it's really not hard to see why. The women in this show are fascinating. They break free of the roles typically assigned to women in anime of this type, and especially in this era. Even the female side characters tend to be interesting, well-written, and fleshed out. This is probably because gender is a primary focus for this series, even if it's never outright stated that the protagonist is genderqueer. Lauren's atypical androgyny is owed to the fact that Tomino insisted he be depicted with both masculine and feminine characteristics. Lauren bridges both sides of the main conflict. He is of both Earth and of the Moon, which makes for a great parallel to his affinity for both masculinity and femininity and is something that we actually frequently see both in trans allegory and in historical references to transness. Speaking of trans symbolism, though, the people in Turn A Gundam almost exclusively refer to the mobile suits as dolls. As a result, Lauren's mech, which has a very distinct-looking Kabuto design, ends up being referred to as the mustached doll pretty derisively, a fact that I find endlessly amusing considering modern slang. Anyway, speaking of dolls, by the late 90s, Tomino had grown increasingly depressed about the state of his creation. Under the eye of an ever-hungry corporate overlord, Gundam had grown far from his original intent. It morphed into something he barely recognized under the weight of its own popularity, and it was forced into banal conformity in an effort to sell more merchandise, more action figures, and more... dolls? Maybe this is speculation on my part, but I can't imagine the extensive use of the term doll in place of mobile suit for turn A was unintentional. But, while we're speculating, let's talk about the relationship between gender and materialism. The two are inseparably intertwined in our modern consumer society, and commodification is often seen as the be-all end-all finishing point of everything, personal identity included. For Tomino, the post-gender, post-sexuality world of Turn A Gundam was intended to be a return to the franchise's original form, pre-commercialization. One that actually helped him work through his depression and restore his faith in the franchise he created without fear or worry of how it was being diluted or commodified. For me, Turn A depicts a world that is a fascinating and freeing place. It's science fiction of the best kind. While it might be rooted in all of the worries and politics of reality, it also has a focus on the aspirational, on the self. Tomino states that this infusion of femininity in turn A is on account of the importance of personal expression, both in sexuality and in gender. To that credit, there is a huge female cast, and a focus on expressing characters' identity through clothing and fashion. Cross-dressing becomes an important piece of the plot, because he believes that men and women should be free to express themselves in multifaceted ways, and though almost all references to Gwen Reinford's sexuality ended up being cut from the final edits of the show, Tomino fought hard to have the character's homosexuality included, stating that it was one of the things that made humanity interesting, and that he didn't want to cap off the century with this piece of his work trapped in society's superficial ideas about human gender and sexuality. 
I don't know about you folks, but for me, the world feels pretty claustrophobic right now. Awareness of trans issues has reached an all-time high, and often it feels like I'm being crushed under the weight of being seen. Everyone seems to think they know what our lives are about, they all have their little opinions, and they all think they know better than we do, but honestly, I think I'd really enjoy living in a world where people stopped giving a shit about gender and sexuality 23 years ago, too. Unfortunately, it's time for us to head back to Earth-1312, where a bunch of weird bastards care way too much about things that aren't their fucking business. But fortunately, we have a Patreon, which can be found at patreon.com backslash totallytrans, where if you back us at $2 or more per month, you'll get access to all of our episodes a week early. And if you back us at $3 or more, you'll be able to listen to our cool bonus content. And at $5 or more, you'll be able to join our Totally Trans Discord server where you can yell at me about how Texan my Japanese pronunciations are. Transmissions from Another Earth is a Totally Trans Podcast Network production, so please like and subscribe to Totally Trans wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Also, please like and rate our episodes, because we live in a world where the moon is invading and the only thing that can help the femboys protect us from giant robots is your contribution to our listener metrics. Watching and researching this show for the minisode was an absolute delight, but it was also incredibly difficult. Turn A Gundam was never dubbed in English, and Tomino's book, Turn A no Iyashi, hasn't officially been translated either. Thankfully, Gundam fans are nearly as obsessive as Star Trek fans, so I was able to find a wonderful fan translation of the book, and several translations of Tomino's subsequent interviews. Even so, the lion's share of this episode's research was gleaned from reading an incredibly insightful blog post called The History and Production of Turn A Gundam by Fees, that's F-E-E-Z, and it comes in a whopping four parts along with a bunch of episode synopsises. Synopses? Synopsises? Eh, whatever. Long story short, I highly recommend giving it a read if this episode at all sparked any interest in you, and you find yourself unable to get a hold of the actual series itself. This Transmissions from Another Earth minisode was written, edited, and hosted by Jacqueline Clyde, who can be found at where underscore wife over on Twitter. As always, our theme music is called Inspiring 8-Bit by Phil Dillo, which we found over on Pixabay, and our opener is a great remix of the very same song done by Ada Rhodes. So thanks, Phil. Thanks, Ada. You guys did a great job. Additionally, I would like to give a single special thanks to my friend Deneb, and once again, my partner Cedar, for helping me cut down a lot of this episode. As you'll note, it's about twice as long as previous ones, and this is the abridged version. So, isn't that crazy? Anyhow, until next week, transmission over.